Hello and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. It has been a minute. How are you doing? I should say I'm back not with a brand new season uh, just yet, but with a triple bill of bonus episodes that I recorded a couple of months ago, uh, either for live events or to tie in with a film release. And this is the first in the series. Um, It's with the immensely talented and very down-to-earth writer-director Prano Bailey Bond. Prano grew up in Wales on a diet of Twin Peaks before becoming an editor and then an award-winning music video director. Her narrative short films have screened at festivals worldwide and earned her critical acclaim, including being named a Screen International Star of Tomorrow in 2018. Her debut feature film, Censor, had its world premiere at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival, opening the festival's midnight section, and will be released in UK cinemas this Friday. Censor is set in Britain in 1985 and follows a film censor called Enid, played by BAFTA-nominated actress Neve Algar, as she discovers an eerie horror that speaks directly to her sister's mysterious disappearance. She then resolves to unravel the puzzle behind the film and its enigmatic director, a quest that will blur the lines between fiction and reality in terrifying ways. Which sounds suitably nerve-shredding. I actually saw the film last week and, yeah, I mean, it's it's disturbing, it's hallucinogenic, suitably nasty. That's all I'm going to say because, you know, it's probably one of those films where it's best if you go in with minimal info. Prano and I discuss many things, uh, from how she discovered directing was her calling to the conditions she prefers in order to write, how she prepares for a shoot, how she communicates with and directs actors, how she established a common visual language with DP Annika Summerson, and what it's been like releasing a horror film amidst the woman directing genre films boom. I'm a big fan of Prano's and the films, so I highly recommend you book a ticket immediately immediately after listening to the podcast. This is episode 90 of Best Girl Grip. Why I always like to kick off with this podcast is just getting a sense of where you went to university, if you did, and what you studied there. Yeah, I did go to university. Um, I went to the London College of Printing and I studied film and video at BA. It was like a a very practical course um, in filmmaking. So you knew at that stage that that is kind of the career that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I knew quite early on, really. I mean, I was always obsessed with film, but I thought at first I wanted to be a actress. So <laughs> I went and studied performing arts at um, Ker- uh, Colleg Ceredigion, which is an Aberystwyth, where I grew up in Wales. And so, yeah, I sort of studied performing arts and and kind of was acting, but then um, had always been kind of making little films of my own and stuff like that in the background. And it was kind of there that I realised, I suppose, that I wanted to be a director, partly because I'd seen myself act on camera and I realised I wasn't that good, or at least I didn't think I was that good. I think I could perform, but I, I never saw myself becoming another character, which was what I always admired in, in actors. But actually, it was when I got to direct something for the first time there, which was because it was focused on performance and theatre. It was actually a a theatre production. And I chose uh, The Chairs by Ionesco, which is like an absurdist play. And I enjoyed it so much. I basically just realised that I loved shaping the performance from the outside and that by being a director, you were kind of able to shape the visual experience as well as the performance. and then. I sort of started to become, I guess, frustrated with the spaces that we were doing our exercises and things in. And I felt like 
you know, they were maybe uh, constricting in terms of feeling the truth of a, a situation. So, you know, I remember one exercise we had and it was some kind of scene where there was like a, a policeman giving someone some news or something. And, and, and I thought, God, this would be so much nicer if it was a real location. So I asked my classmates if we could go and actually film it in someone's living room. And I, I kind of would basically go out and film stuff that we were doing on stage, so, so to speak. Mm. Um, I'd film that in real locations. And I wanted a bit more control, you know, like in theatre, obviously you've got lights to focus the audience in certain places. Um, on the stage but I wanted to you know focus in a in a more detailed way on images and be able to use different size shots and things like that so Mm -hmm. that was kind of what drew me I suppose to storytelling through film but like I said always been obsessed with films so it kind of all made sense really. And did directing feel like a realistic goal or something that you could make a living out of? Or you were kind of just pursuing that sort of like creative gut instinct to do it as opposed to thinking, yeah, I can actually, you know, make a living wage out of this? Yeah, I mean, I was like 16. So I don't think I was thinking about (laughs) what was realistic or, you know, necessarily. I mean, I can't, my my mum was an actress um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, My dad was an artist and photographer. We didn't really have much money or anything like that. But um, I guess for me, it didn't feel like working in the arts or anything was unusual. I suppose that was what I was always drawn to. Yeah, I was just following what I was passionate about, really. And how did you go about transitioning from making films at university to then kind of doing that as a living? You know, what do you consider to be your kind of first official steps into the film industry? So when I left university, I... I basically started looking for a job in the industry and I got a job as a runner at Goldcrest uh, post-production. So I was a runner there for about 18 months, which was amazing because you're, you're on one hand, you're kind of really in the industry in lots of ways. I mean, you're not on set, but you have stars coming in to do ADR and big directors coming in to mix their films and things. So there's that side of it. There's also the side where you're basically a dog's body getting people's coffees, tidying up. I actually had to clear up Tilda Swinton's child sick once. That was like the kind of top, you know, moment of being a runner. So you're doing all kinds of things. But at the same time, there were directors that I met, you know, maybe you're kind of sitting on reception doing the night shift because they're doing a late mix and directors would come out and say, you know, what do you want to be? And I'd say, I want to be a director. And they'd say, come in and sit on the mix then and, and learn. So, you know, you're able to be in those environments. And I was able to assist in ADR and actually see ADR kind of happening and how that mm. worked and things. So that, I guess, was my first official job. And then I worked in mainly in post-production, really, as assistants and then worked in, up to becoming, uh, getting a first freelance job as an editor. That's really interesting that you started out in editing um, and I'd kind of love to know was that again something that you were just pursuing um, adjacent to being a director or for a while you kind of thought actually yeah, editing is something that you could also go into? Um, I think at, at first I didn't see the editing and directing when I was a, a teenager mm. I didn't really s- sort of separate editing and directing if that makes sense like I wasn't learning film through anybody you know no one was teaching me 
I was trying to find information and just learn as much as I could myself. So I'd gone on a linear VHS editing course, uh, night course in my college. And this was all during my BTEC. I then taught myself how to edit on Premiere Pro. So I'd kind of taught myself how to edit in order to be able to make films. And then the editing side just happened quite naturally because I was working for a friend's company who knew I edited. One day the editor didn't turn up for work. It was like a dry hire uh, suite. And he said, can you do it? And I was like, oh my God, I've never been in a room with a director. You know, as an editor, I've sat and edited my own my own mm-hmm. stuff, but I'd never worked like that. So it was really nerve wracking. But that director then actually contacted me for my first freelance job as an editor. And I think, you know, through that, I got much better at editing, basically, because mm-hmm. you're doing it so much. And then I was able to edit my own work to a standard that I was happy with, um, rather than have to kind of lean on other people. So I, d- I think it really benefited me, you know, when I was making my early stuff, because if you want to spend a lot of time really refining that edit, then you can because it's your time. You're not kind of having to beg someone to work for free on your music video or your short film or something. Do you think it's also changed your approach to storytelling and that you're just you're aware maybe more of kind of the editing process, just a, a prescient way that you're kind of thinking about how you might cut things while you're writing it? Yeah, definitely. And I think particularly in my music videos, because I was using techniques that were very kind of uh, pixelation, for example, which I used in my music video house, mm-hmm. where you get sort of the actors to move very slowly and then speed it up to the beat. So they kind of look animated. Those kind of techniques, I think, were allowed me to bring my ideas to life in a more I don't know, effective or um, more unique way, I think. But then also for storytelling, I always say to young filmmakers, learn how to edit because if you're on set and you need to drop something because you're running out of time, if you know what you need for the cutting room, you ha- I think it just makes you a more confident director. I think it makes you a bit more confident in the choices that you make and what you need and what you don't need. So, yeah, I definitely I think it's a great thing to have behind you as a director. So how did the opportunity to start directing music videos arise? So I made a few music videos off my own back for like 150, 200 pounds. And then through those videos, I got representation as a music video director. So then I was getting sent briefs for video, you know, videos and you pitch on them and then you either don't get the job or you do and then you you get to make the video but it was it was quite a learning curve I think because having come from making I I mean I made a video for 160 pounds that was the main one that kind of got me attention and Mm -hmm. won a UK music video award and then you go to like pitching on something winning a job where it's like a 10 grand budget and at that point in my head I was like wow I can do anything with 10 grand (laughs) look what I did with 160 quid but the reality is you can't do that much with I mean we we did a lot with 10 grand but it was really hard and and it was a big learning curve for me to sort of once you start paying people that money just disappears because we'd always kind of borrowed equipment off mates and you know I'd roped friends in to do stuff and that sort of thing nobody was making any money out of it so Mm -hmm. yeah it was it was a shift 
yeah sometimes it's funny isn't it like the lower budgets you have like actually the more you can get away with just because the, yeah that mentality of what you're asking for changes whereas yeah the, yeah. the, the kind of mid-budget range actually can be more limiting and then thinking about you know turning into a writer director was writing or you're always going to write your own stories or again was that something you know to aid your own control over the process is that you could then you know create the material that you're then going to go on to direct and maybe edit yeah, I mean, my my writing journey has been like rocky in in terms of my own personal writing journey. Mm. I I wrote my first short film out of university, which I made while I was a runner at Goldcrest, and it was very it was kind of heavily metaphorical. And I remember coming out of the screening and thirty percent of the audience understanding what it was about and thinking I'm a terrible writer (laughs) I can't write I mustn't write anything you know so I I think I basically didn't I I lost a lot of confidence as a writer at that point and I started to collaborate with other writers and actually over time I got my confidence back and realized that you know writing is a skill it's not something you just do it's not something that you can just ma- you're magically born with this gift you actually have to learn the craft and that was what I needed to do so over the years I I kind of built my confidence back up I suppose but I also struggled a little bit earlier on with balancing my time because I was making like shorts and music videos all the time and so you're doing that and you're trying to earn money to live off like for me it was easier to to collaborate with writers because if I'd have been writing I don't think I'd have been able to do as much basically and I I was keen to be on set and shooting and editing as much as possible but then also music videos you know you're writing all of those ideas you're writing like so many ideas constantly as a music video director because you're pitching all the time that threw up two questions. And the first is you spoke there about learning the craft. And I'm wondering if that was just through practice and, you know, lots of iterative processes about writing drafts and drafts, or whether you did something, you know, a short course or, you know, what were you doing to hone that process for yourself? I think it's a combination of those two things. I think it's writing and it's reading about writing. And it's also understanding that it is hard you know, and that it's hard for everybody Mm. and figuring out your own process as well, which is going to be different for each person. Yeah. So I guess I've kind of always dipped in and out of books and found, you know, the kind of structure, like, you know, explanations that helped me at that point. And that, that can also be a great thing to like lean back on when you're stuck at a certain point, reading loads of scripts, I think really helps. And, and then it's just about doing it and bashing something into shape. It's, it's a chiseling process, mm. basically. And the first draft is going to be a bit of a splat of ideas. And then you just keep working on it and working on it and shaping it into, you know, a beautiful sculpture. Mm, I like the visual images that brings to mind. <laughs> the first draft is going to be a splat. Um, And then I'm really interested in kind of your transition from directing music videos to narrative and whether you ever thought, whether you ever felt constrained by music videos and you thought that maybe you'd be pigeonholed into that kind of sphere or if they felt like a natural transition between one and the other. Yeah, um, I mean, I was, I, I made my first short film when I was like 16 or something, just me with a DV camera shooting, editing, doing everything myself. So I was always kind of making short films, basically. 
there was a moment where I thought oh, it'd be really cool to make music videos and there was a friend's song and I thought I could just turn this into a music video and so actually my move into music videos felt like freedom at the beginning because I did my first music video kind of off the back of doing a short film where I'd felt really restrained by a bigger crew and you know the time pressures and things like that so I designed a shoot that was really limited it was just me my DP and a makeup artist and I played all the characters myself and it was very strange (laughs) but I'm really proud of it it's called Poltergeist and that was really just a way of creating like a playground in which Mm -hmm. I could have ideas on set and actually explore them and you're not kind of being told to move on all the time by the AD and you know thinking about when the next act is arriving and things like that so the beginning of making music videos was kind of quite freeing in that sense but then as I went on I found that the pitching process once I got repped was just sucking all my time up basically and it meant that I didn't have the time to focus on writing a feature treatment and things Mm. I think in terms of the way they kind of or the way music videos maybe inspired the narrative side I think you can think more non-linearly in music videos and really imaginatively and things don't have to make sense in the same way they do in narrative, which I think uses a different side of your imagination. But also you're getting more experience as a director and I think that's really valuable. So you're you're shooting more and and again, like you're working with clients and you're working in a more professional way so those things definitely kind of I guess in some ways influenced the narrative work but yeah I was always kind of doing the narrative the narrative side of things features and and shorts was always the thing I really wanted to be doing yeah and we have to talk about Nasty which is one of your short films that I feel like is most directly um, related to your feature debut sensor um, in that it kind of revolves around this world of video nasties and I'd love to know where you first kind of came across that idea and why it was something that you wanted to explore in your work. So the, the feature actually came first. I was on a plane. <laughs> I was reading this article about how sensors work during the Hammer Horror era and how that they would cut the image of blood on the breast of a woman during that period because they believed it made men likely to commit rape. And I thought, well, I'm sure probably most of the censors were men. So how come the men weren't affected by these images if they were seeing them uncut? Mm. And so I kind of, that was my first thought in terms of censor. And then from that point, I started reading more and more about censorship and landed in the video nasty era because it's basically one of the most interesting periods, in my opinion, in the UK in terms of, of censorship and, mm. and horror films and what happened in society. And obviously being an 80s child, you know, there's that draw to it as well. But then we were kind of developing that. And I, I remember like a BFI short film uh, fund opened up and I thought, oh, we could do a short film that's like a kind of sister story to the main feature and apply to the BFI and they'll fund us and then we'll be in with them and then they'll fund the feature. But they didn't fund the short film. We weren't selected. But I was so in love with the short by that point. I crowdfunded for that and made it, you know, in a different way. But it was always like a, almost like a story that could exist at the same time as the feature story. You know, but it it kind of informed the feature in lots of ways because I was able to explore elements of the narrative through the short, the things that I felt really worked Mm -hmm. 
and also some of the kind of visual techniques that I wanted to use. And again, you're kind of using that as a test ground in a way to sort of see what you can carry through to the feature film. Yeah, like holding up swatches of paint to a wall and seeing, you know, what yeah. can work. And so then can you talk about that path of developing your feature, you know, alongside this short to make it kind of what it is? Like, what were you, what were you testing? What were you throwing out? You know, what ideas did you find worked and what didn't? So one thing that came from the short was this idea of the main character, like searching for a family member who was missing. Because it, for me, it was always about a character who was journeying into the world of the video nasties. And, you know, I wanted to find that pull, I guess. So that was something that came from the short and I felt it worked really well. So I carried that through to the feature. But then on a kind of more technical level, we shot Nasty on 16 mil. And even though when we shot it on set, I was like, I hate shooting on film. I'm never shooting on film again <laughs> because it's, it is quite, it's tricky because you're having to measure how much stock you've got all the time. And, you know, you don't have an endless budget, so you just have to keep an eye on those things. And that can restrict you in terms of how much you could shoot, how many takes you can go for and things. But then I got the rushes back and was like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. I always want to shoot on film. So we shot a sensor on 35 mil because also it felt like it was the right format for the era, that it really sort of takes you back to that period. But then there were things like on a more kind of VFX level as well. I was trying out in Nasty. Framestore did the VFX for Nasty and, you know, were amazing. All their junior artists worked on it for free in their spare time. And we were able to kind of explore how we transported into the video Nasty world and things. And so those were not just great ways of me seeing that it worked, but also being able to kind of communicate those ideas to my crew and everybody in, in during the feature. And also you're sort of, identifying that it's an idea that audiences um, appreciate as well like you know the, the short went to loads of festivals and so you can then go to financiers and say there's an audience for this mm-hmm. as well legs. and yeah. I think yeah and I think they can see it more clearly as well when it's an idea that's maybe a bit more unusual it helps if there's something quite tangible for you to show them. Definitely. And given that you've said learning how to write a script has kind of been a process of learning for yourself, I'm wondering, A, how you found writing um, Sensor and also, you know, what you what you learned through that experience? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so I, co- I co-wrote Sensor with Anthony Fletcher, who I worked with on quite a few of my short films. Mm-hmm. And I think I learned that I guess that it's hard, that it's about really, I think I learned my own process. You know, for me, you're learning what inspires you and what helps you because you might have those days where you sit there and there's nothing coming and then you do some research and you feel really inspired and you learn that research is something that helps you, right? And and then I think also it was the first time I'd ever developed something with people like Film 4, the BFI, Film Wales, like those execs who are feeding in on the process and a script editor as well. So you're learning as well how to deal with notes coming in and how to make use of those, but also how to stay true to what you want to do. And and that was kind of at times, I guess, I don't know if painful is too extreme a word, but it was definitely like growing pains in that process because you don't always agree with a note, but then actually sometimes a note is 
there because you're not being clear about what you're trying to communicate. So it is a learning process of, of how to take that on board and make the work better. And I, I do think that that made, you know, made the writing better and made me a better writer as having that back and forth, I guess, even though it was painful at times. And can we talk a little bit about your kind of your writing conditions? You know, do you are you, do you work in an office from your home? Like, can you kind of write wherever and whenever? Like, how do you establish the conditions that you need to write well? I had an office outside of my home ages ago and I could never mm. write in it. I found it just uncomfortable and I need to be really comfortable when I write. Um, so I've always tried to make sure that I've got a space in my house that is for writing whether it's an office like at the moment this is my office that I'm in now but in other you know at other times maybe I haven't been able to have an office so I've made sure I've got a space in my room that's specifically for writing but I do like to move around I definitely with sense I definitely wrote part of that in bed <laughs> I think there's like something about changing your environment even if it's just moving to the living room being on the sofa that can just freshen your mind a little bit some days I feel like writing lying down like today I've been lying on the sofa writing (laughs) and that's felt like the way to move forwards but then at other times you're like I need to be at a desk and it needs to be like this and Mm. I need to play some ambient music and I guess that's another thing is sound for me it has to be really quiet so I've got like noise cancelling headphones and things and then with sensor it was interesting because I so I stay in the house for writing but then what I would do to read the draft back would be export it as a PDF and then put it on my iPad. Mm. So I can't change anything when I'm reading it back. Right. There's no you know, temptation to just start editing as you go. And I'd go to a cafe with some earplugs and I'd read it there and just make notes like mm. quickly on the iPad. So you're experiencing the read in a different way that feels a bit fresher so that was always a really good thing I always found that really useful when I figured out I should leave the house to read the script that was really helpful but at the moment I think writing's different like when I wrote Sensor I could block the whole world out because I wasn't about to release a film (laughs) so now it's balancing writing with you know all the stuff going on around the release is definitely quite different and I have to try and block out time where I'm just like, I'm not available, but you're still keeping an eye on your emails because there's always things coming up. But I, I I block out the internet when I can, you know, I'll lock myself out of certain websites and things. Just kind of trying as much as possible to put yourself in like a bubble <laughs> so you can just delve into the story, but it's not always easy. And with the residue of sensor kind of still looming over you, like, do you have you found it difficult to kind of switch between the headspaces of that and then this new project? A little bit. I think I didn't anticipate that. So I kind of thought at the beginning of this year, right, beginning of January, I'm going to write film. (laughs) And then I was like, okay, this isn't possible because we were building up to our premiere. and, Mm. And then after that, there was just loads of press and meetings and things. So it's been a learning curve, I guess, to realize that my brain split. But I'm, I think I'm starting to get the hang of that now yeah it it freaked me out for a moment where I was like I'm never going to be able to write because I can't concentrate and now I'm I'm getting the hang of it 
And then I wanted to devote a big chunk to talking about sensor because there's so many things to grapple with and that I want to ask you about. And one of those is based on Variety wrote a review, I think, when it came out at Sundance and they they said, I'm going to read the quote actually, it said, sensor contains visuals guaranteed to sear themselves into your subconscious, which is a great soundbite. But um, I'm wondering how you go about crafting those moments of visual indelibility you know is that something that arrives fully formed are you mood boarding are you fine tuning you know how do you create those visuals it's a really good question i think when an idea comes to me there's normally some clear images in my head that i'm holding on to that are almost like a hook into the project and they're things that you try and hold on to through the script and communicate through the script so it's a hard question about like how you, how you, I, I don't think I, I have gone out to see things into people's subconscious, <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad that that's, you know, how people have experienced the work. It's a funny thing because the image can come to you like super clearly in your mind, but then the process is making that happen in real life. And that is a process of collaboration and work. And sometimes those images have to change and sometimes they come out exactly as you imagined them and it I remember at the end of well the, the last scene we shot in Nasty was the last scene of the film and it was you know day five in the middle of the night in a forest and I felt suddenly like I was in this really surreal moment where I'd almost been like put inside my own imagination because it was so much how, how I imagined that moment in the film and it was just, it was a really surreal feeling. It was just very, very strange. But then you might have other experiences where you just simply can't do what you've had in your mind because the location won't allow you to move in that way or it doesn't actually serve the story. So you have to cut that scene out. So I think it's a, it's a combination of, it's a process. It's the, the ideas that land in your head at the beginning. Yeah, it's magic if they are there at the end. But on a wider note of all the other images, I mean, I, I love visual uh, storytelling and I love creating a world around the characters. And I almost think of the world of the film as its own character in the film. So I'm drawn to an idea a lot by what's the world this, this story exists in and, and how can I create that? I think that's something that definitely like appeals to my senses, I guess. Off the back of that, I'd love to talk about your relationship with your DOP, Annika Summerson. Um, how do you go about, I mean, A, how did you find each other? And then B, you've, I know you've worked together on a few shorts and now Censor. How do you go about creating a common visual language? So we met at London College of Printing. She arrived in the second year and I picked the new girl to shoot a, <laughs> a fictional documentary and we went to Wales together and filmed sheep in a field and that was our sort of first bonding experience and um became really really close friends and she's so talented she's got an incredible eye and she just creates such beautiful images so there was you know obviously I was always kind of drawn to working with her but also I think you're coming up together like if you both have a hunger to create stuff when you're not being paid for it you know the first things we were making together were not paid jobs obviously so you're doing that because you want to advance your career and and so I think that was another reason why we kind of always I don't know kept working together I guess there was that 
And then, yeah, particularly working on this film, how did you go about creating a common visual language, you know, making sure that you're on the same page all the time? Mm. Well, I think there's a shorthand that happens when you've worked together a lot. I think because you know each other's tastes and tendencies, which Annika and I also try to be aware of to stay fresh and not assume because we've known each other now for such a long time. I don't want her to assume that I still like what I liked when I was like 23. (laughs) So we, you know, we try to make sure we're talking about things, obviously, and we're not just being like psychic or anything. Mm -hmm. But it always comes from the journey, the character journey. That's kind of the first place that you'd start with talking about any project, the kind of atmosphere of the film and how you want to create that. So, you know, for Sensor, for example, I was always keen to paint an 80s Britain that was kind of more the 80s Britain that I remembered that isn't like kind of shoulder pads and big perms and ghetto blasters, even though that I do remember that, but more this kind of bleak, slightly washed out greys and blues and the kind of real world that you see nowadays when you walk down the street rather than the sort of the pure world that's sort of created when you when you look back at these periods. So we kind of started there. And then for me, it was always in Sensor, a journey from there into the world of the video nasties. So we talked a lot about how we get from real 80s Britain into this lurid, visual, kind of colourful world. So we talked a lot about how we'd use colour, how we weaved the colour from one world to the next. So, for example, you know, we don't have any pinks or purples in the Sensor's office at the beginning. And then we might go into Enid's dream and when we come back into the census office, that's when we first see purple for the first mm-hmm. time. So it was about how to kind of slowly shift the world rather than be like suddenly we're in this mm-hmm. alternate universe. Um, so we talked a lot about that and and also references and watching films together and that kind of thing. You know, that those are some of the things we were doing and discussing. I mean, speaking of references and those pinks and purples, Sensor clearly plays homage to kind of a lot of those gory, um, but also like really glorious films of the 70s and 80s. I mean, Suspiria obviously springs to mind as being one of them. And I'm wondering how you towed that line between creating something referential, but that also was original and, and completely, you know, of itself. It's really funny because I get asked that question a lot and and I always give an answer and then I'm like, how did I do that? <laughs> I think I think ultimately you can't avoid being you in a way as a director. Like I know some people call that your voice, but you make specific choices because of the story you're telling. All of the scenes that we shot that were video nasties in the film were there to sort of serve the story and to serve Enid's journey. So you're seeing them in a very specific way through Enid's point of view. So, for example, there's a scene that could have been quite pastiche and funny, but had it been, it would have pulled us completely out of the experience Mm. that Enid is going through. So I had to really toe that line because, you know, the temptation is to just go wild with that. But but you have to remember that you're, you're keeping the audience in the perspective of the character. So I think those are the things that keep it original or keep it unique because it's about having a unique point of view. But then you're referencing the films from the period. So with each film within the film, 
or even the dreams in the film, I was referencing to my crew specific video nasties that felt appropriate tonally to kind of like draw from, I guess, you know, and so so it's sort of balancing those two things, I think. Have you heard of Austin Kleon's Steal Like an Artist? There's a book called Steal Like an Artist by a writer called oh. Austin Kleon. And it kind of reminds me of that is that you're like, you're borrowing from lots of different artists, but then in that process of taking from lots of different places and then kind of mixing them up with you, you create something completely unique. And so it's yeah. it's, it's stealing, but not <laughs> in a good way. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But also I think that's what horror does. And that's the kind of amazing thing about the language of horror films mm. and the audience for horror recognised that language. So I, I think horror does that. It's, it's so self-referential. You know, there's winks all the way through many horrors to the audience mm-hmm. that know horror. So I think it's a genre that's like, you know, ripe for that. And then Enid is played by Neve Algar, who is wonderful and, you know, it's such a rising star. And I think people are going to love this performance in Censor. How did you come across her and why did you cast her? You know, why was she right for you in this film? So I met Neve on the Screen Stars of Tomorrow in 2018. We were part of the same batch of, uh, <laughs> you know, filmmakers and actors coming through that year. So when I met her, we were just chatting in like a fancy bar at, at this dinner they were putting on for us. And I just thought she was so lovely and didn't think about the, you know, you know, I wasn't thinking about casting or anything at that point. We hadn't, I was still writing. And then when we got to casting, my casting director said, you know, Neve's name had come up and I was like, oh my God, she's amazing. I'd seen her by that point in The Virtues, mm. or I think it had come out almost around the same time. And I was like, wow, she's just incredible. So I was really excited to meet her. And and she came in and she read. And I think there were a lot of things that drew me to Neve. I mean, first off, she's incredibly truthful. And that's always what I'm looking for in, in an actor is, is this, like, I don't know, grounded in her belly truth. But also she had both sides of Enid she Enid's like this kind of very closed off almost like a coiled spring very repressed at the beginning of the film and she's I think what I needed to tell the story of Enid was somebody who was incredibly nuanced because she doesn't talk about what's going on for her you know you're you're looking for an actor that can put thought on screen basically because Enid is interpreting information in a way that is different to how anybody else is interpreting information. And the actor needs to be able to communicate that without words. And Neve was able to do that, basically. She she came in, she did that. But also when we read the later scenes, which are very different, she pretty much blew my mind. She took them to places that, like, they were beyond my expectations, I guess. It, it was a combination of of many things, mainly her talent, but also you kind of are looking for someone that you think I can work with this person. You know, I I can communicate with them and you know that they're going to be in every single scene. So can they carry this mm-hmm. film, basically? And I, I felt like Neve really could. And luckily I was... <laughs> that instinct (laughs) was was right and then thinking about the fact that a you had an early interest in performance and acting yourself and then developing this relationship with Neve and developing this character of Enid who as you said kind of has these two sides how do you go about directing that performance on the day and and throughout the shoot and and teasing out those nuances from the performance 
because I wrote the script myself, I was in Enid's head mm. for a long time. Obviously, I was co-writing, but it's, it's such a single point of view film. You're basically inside the character's mind, which is, I think, what you have to be to direct. You know, maybe other directors don't think that, but I think it really helps. You're seeing from that character's point of view. For me and Neve, we spent quite a lot of time on Skype in the months kind of leading up to the to the shoot. She was actually working in Cape Town, so we couldn't meet up, but we'd just jump on Skype and we'd talk through the the story, talk through the character, and through that you're getting to know each other as well. And I think without realising you're developing a shorthand and also you're taking the character to the next level with the actor because the writing process takes it to a certain point and then the actor comes and they're almost like, in this case, third writer because they're breathing life into the character. And I think, you know, allowing the actors to bring their ideas to the character as well is really important because then they take ownership of the character. So that process, I think, was really valuable for me and Neve, And also it meant that we built a relationship and a trust by the time we got on set I think on set you're there as the like eyes and ears for the actor you're the first audience basically and you're there to remind them of things that are going to be helpful I I mean obviously there's the kind of the Judith Weston things that are really helpful the kind of you know what they want in the scene and um, intentions and things like that that I, I find really useful but you figure out what works for each actor as much as possible and sometimes it's just reminding an actor you know you really care about that character you're speaking to or something and that that small thing can change the performance so much or they'll be like oh yeah of course I'm you know just reminding them of something that the, the, the character's thinking so I, I just watch the performance incredibly closely and and look for any gaps in a way and then you're in there and and you're talking and I think with Neve it was brilliant because I mean we shot really fast and so to have somebody who's so free as an actor in a way like she's well-oiled is the wrong <laughs> word but like you know she's she's very flexible as an actor and she and I think our communication was really good so I'd be able to come in and be like oh you know remind her about that thing or say why don't we try this and mm. and she'd be able to actually do it I mean you can be a brilliant director but again if you don't cast brilliant actors then mm. there's only so much you can do <sighs> yeah you just you have to just have that have that communication down and make really fast decisions and know what you want I think as a director as well mm. because you don't have a long time to you don't have time to waste so you know the other fa factor with sensor is we were shooting on film so every take you go for is another p potential like reel of film gone so that adds another stress as a director to to both the director and the actor and then thinking about that idea of coming to set knowing what you want having to make fast decisions how are you kind of physically preparing to direct you know in the weeks or even days leading up to a shoot I'm sort of thinking about it as like a, a first day at school where you are packing all the items that you need like what is in your kind of director's school bag that is how it is actually <laughs> um I mean on sense I was I bought an iPad before we shot and that was amazing because on all my shorts I never had an iPad and I'd have all these bits of paper and they'd just end up all over the place I'd lose my clipboard 
it would just I remember having a shot list at the end of one short and it was just a scrumpled up soggy kind of piece of paper probably soggy with my sweat or something <laughs> so the iPad is like definitely how I do it in future and I mean as a director myself I prep quite a lot I mean I broke down the film before we started prep I broke down the film for myself scene by scene and I included all my references for every department in that document and then during prep I mean this was my first feature so it was it it was intense like I didn't yeah you don't have as much time as you think you're going to have and I'd done as much prep as I could before I was in that situation but I shot list and I, I, I floor plan they're kind of my two things that I'll always have ready but sometimes you can't do a floor plan until you've got a location and if you don't have a location until like just before the shoot you're kind of you can be kind of prepping madly like in the the hours the night before or whatever it because it all has a knock-on effect but I tend to yeah I break down the scene uh, for the performance I then break it down visually for myself and with all my different notes and just try to have as many things on the script that are going to potentially help me on the day or remind me of something that I wanted um, and then uh, you know you kind of obviously you're prepping with all your HODs as well. I suppose yeah because when you're in the writing or development process you know you have a lot of I guess time or you can indulge your imagination whereas when you're on set it's much more about bringing whatever that kind of trigger is going to be that brings that yeah that image or that clarity to what you're creating kind of to the fore exactly when you need it you kind of yeah need yeah a, a box of magic tricks yeah and I think also the there was a point with sensor definitely where I felt like okay I'm taking my writer hat off and I'm putting my director hat on now and I'm looking at the scenes differently. Another thing that I did that was really helpful was read-throughs with the actors and as much as possible I tried to rehearse with them because that really helps the writing process because sometimes I'd find, oh, actually we don't need that line or, oh, this is a double beat or actually I could restructure this so it, it, this bit goes at the end. And, mm-hmm. and I, I figured that out through hearing it out loud and obviously like hearing the actor's intuition basically and listening to that. And the more I worked with the actors, the more that felt, felt fluid and helpful, I think. And I think that will make me a better writer, hopefully. And then, you know, are you spoken about particularly being attracted to the horror genre and and the kind of the darkness and the strangeness that that throws up and not leaving that realm you know it is clearly a space that you want to continue working in and I'm I'm wondering why that feels particularly fruitful for your ideas and the stories that you want to tell you know why is that the medium that you feel is best to express those stories I I definitely do want to work in other genres but I love horror I mean I wasn't I didn't come to horror being like I want to be a horror director I found myself making films that other people said that's a horror film. Right. So I think it was about the kind of characters and stories that I was I'm I am drawn to, which are perhaps exploring the darker sides of us. But also, like I said, the first thing I wrote was full of metaphor. And I think horror is very metaphorical. And I think you know, that's a an exciting space to work in. I think you can be very imaginative in the genre, but it's also, 
I guess repression has been sort of a theme like in some of my work and horror is kind of like the return of the repressed. It's about the thing that you ignore in your life that is going to bubble up in a horrible way because you're pushing it down and pushing it down so it's going to like sneak out on you in the dark at night and, and get you. It's, it's that monster you're trying not to see out the corner of your eye. And so I think that those are reasons where I've, you know, that why I've been drawn to the genre. But I think I categorise what I want to work in more as nightmares than horror because I think nightmares is broader and it can incorporate, you know, thriller and, and dark drama and, and it can be mind bending and all the things that I love. Because I don't think all my shorts were horror, but it's good as a short filmmaker for people to recognise you for something. You could think of it as being pigeonholed, but actually when there's so many filmmakers out there if people kind of know what you do then they're more likely to think oh I can go to that person for this. I'd also love your thoughts briefly on what it's been like being a woman director in the kind of the genre space because I I imagine it can be maybe a double-edged sword in that you know it's, it's difficult on both levels perhaps to gain critical attention working in horror just because it has you know historically been maligned or considered not as serious but then at the same time you know women directors in genre are having a kind of a bit of a boom so there is attention from that but then also you don't want to be lumped together in that category because there's so much more nuance as you've just described to the genre so can you maybe speak to those kind of issues and how you found it kind of releasing your first film yeah I mean I definitely think there was a period where being both a categorized horror director and a woman director were not necessarily like the flavor of the moment and I didn't get funding for a lot of the work that I was trying to get off the ground you know Mm. I was having to sort of try and find other ways of making stuff and just make stuff out of opportunities um, that were coming my way in other ways rather than be able to make the films I was pitching then I think we had like a I think off the back of Babadook and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and Raw, I think people took a chance on those directors. A chance is a horrible way of putting it, actually, but they, you know, saw how brilliant these films were and they made them and they were a success. And then suddenly the industry goes, oh, actually, we like horror. We like women who are making horror. And and then when I was, I guess, coming you know, to to financiers with Censor, it felt much, you know, better in terms of being a female horror director. You know, it felt much more popular, basically, Mm -hmm. which was was great. It's wonderful. But yeah, you do you do kind of, I guess, get bundled together. And I think it's funny because I I think it's it's why I have um, a problem with the term the final girl as well which I know is like really like well written about by lots mm-hmm. of people and things. But for me, I think it bundles all the female characters from these films into like one stereotype or one mould uh, when actually they're all individual characters. And I think, you know, you look at all the kind of female directors working today in horror, we're all doing something different, but we're we're a movement, I guess. That's what mm-hmm. people are seeing it as a movement. But maybe we should define what a movement is because we're not all kind of planning together what this is. We're all just making our own films in the same way as 
male horror directors would be making their own films, but you're you're bunched in the same group. And there's there's positives, of course, with that. But I think most people want to be seen as an individual. Allowing for movement within the movement. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also feel like we should say we're using air quotes around the term female horror director, which isn't going to translate on a podcast. (laughs) And then I I always ask kind of if there's something that you consider to be a biggest learning curve. And and so perhaps to be more specific to your experience of directing Censor, I'm wondering if you went back to the beginning to direct it again, is there anything that you would do differently? Oh God, I don't know. What would I do? That's a really good question. No one's, no one's asked me that. I've got like a whole list of things that I wrote down. (laughs) What would I do differently? Or perhaps just something that you in yourself feel like you're going to carry across in directing your next film that you've learned from this journey. I think for me, like I've kind of said it already, I think for me, the biggest learning curve for me has been becoming more confident as a writer. And if I could go back and tell my whatever 20, whatever old self to not think that you're no good at it, just to, to actually work on writing and hone the craft of writing. I might have a few more scripts <laughs> ready to go by this point if I'd done that. So I think for me, I've, I've definitely gained a lot more confidence as a writer. There's some small things, I don't know, they're a bit techy, but like even things like for me when I was shooting Sensor, they always say start with the wide on set. And I I always did that, but then there were like the odd scene where we'd start have to start with a close-up for whatever reason. And I always found that actually worked a lot better because you can start with the close-up and get into a rhythm with each actor. You're not trying to get everything perfect at the beginning. Mm. When I did it that way round, I felt like we all got into a groove much better and we'd end up with like like two wides or something like that, two takes on the wide. Whereas whenever we started with a wide, we'd end up with loads more takes on the wide because you're trying to get everything to land exactly in the right place at the beginning. So I guess that's something I definitely, you know, take on when I'm directing on on the ground kind of thing. In, in future. Tuning each instrument individually before playing the whole orchestra, I guess. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then finally, I'd love to know what's a film from a woman director that you consider to be a bit of a hidden gem? So I, I've i got loads of films that I love by female directors, but I think they're probably not hidden gems. So I am going to say a film that I discovered recently, which is a documentary made in 1981, and it's called Be Pretty and Shut Up. And it's by Delphine Sane. Yes, I've had that I don't, know if I, um, don't know if I'm pronouncing it, her surname right, but it's interviews with actresses during the, I imagine, late 70s, considering when it came out, lots of them are familiar faces talking about their experiences as actresses you know, the roles that they get to play, the limitations, the way that directors speak to them. And watching that recently was like, I don't know, it was quite amazing because it it at once showed me how far we have and haven't come, you know, and also showing that these conversations were going on then as well, the same conversations about the kind of roles that women get. And it was much worse then but also things like age gaps between romantic partners in films and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. These, these representations of women on screen and how it affected the actresses. So I, 
I just it's on YouTube it's in French but I think the version on YouTube has subtitles but yeah it's really really great amazing I'll link to it in the show notes it sounds very uh, frustrating but galvanizing <laughs> yeah absolutely um Prano thank you so much for coming on the podcast today it's been such a pleasure to talk with you thanks for having me it's been a pleasure Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous interviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. I'll be back next week with another bonus episode. But in the meantime, check out Censor, directed by Prano Bailey Bond, which is in UK cinemas this Friday. (laughs) 